we thought initially, you know, should we look at shortages of masks? And then there were hundreds of stories about hospitals not having ventilators. That was a year ago. First came the stories of how unprepared many countries were, without masks and ventilators. Then it was oxygen. People were struggling for air. They'd die gasping for air because there was just no oxygen to treat them. And now, what the world needs is vaccines. But even with lives on the line, what some vaccine companies are asking is just too high a price for governments to accept. They said that Pfizer asked them to put up federal bank reserves, embassy buildings, military bases. Then if there were any legal costs that needs to be paid, Pfizer would seize them. Madeleine Davis is a global health correspondent for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London. The Bureau sounds like a scary FBI department, but it's a non-profit media organisation. And for the past year, I've been reporting on access to medicines and health inequalities in relation to COVID-19. A year ago this week, March 11th, the World Health Organization officially declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. Today, we're taking stock of global inequities when it comes to how the world has handled it all, including allegations of vaccine companies bullying countries in the global south. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Do you remember when the pandemic was first announced? The coronavirus outbreak has been labeled a pandemic by the World Health Organization. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. What you were thinking, how you were feeling? Yes, so it's so, so strange to think back about that time. So I remember these news stories of this mysterious flu coming out of China. And at that point, there were still discussions about whether it would become a pandemic. Lots of my friends were saying, you know, is this just a flu? Is this really going to hurt us? And I remember looking at the death rate Around that time, the World Health Organization said was about 2%. And that was definitely higher than the death rate for seasonal flu. So I remember being like, if just 2% of the people I know die, that's quite a lot of people. What Madeline didn't realize was how many people would die who didn't have to. People's lives really are in the balance here. She's done some reporting on vaccine access in Latin America. That's made that even more clear. What can you tell me about how you found this all out, how this story started for you all? So this started just by talking to to government officials. And one official specifically. Um, I can't name them, I'm afraid, because it signed a confidentiality agreement with Pfizer. She also can't name the country where they're an official. They aren't supposed to talk about Pfizer or their negotiations with Pfizer, But that was exactly what they wanted to talk about. They said that Pfizer had been the most difficult company to work with and the government felt that they had been bullied and held to ransom by Pfizer. That's using the officials' own words during these negotiations. So Pfizer, they said, was the first company they started negotiating with back in June last year. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is already designing a manufacturing line where it could mass produce a vaccine. Pfizer is one of the companies involved in these trials. Researchers from Pfizer and a German partner are trying to alter the virus's genetic code. And at that point, Pfizer's vaccine hadn't been shown to be efficacious yet. It hadn't been approved yet. And this mRNA technology that Pfizer was using was quite new for vaccines. 
Still, the company was already trying to get this vaccine sold, and this anonymous official was on the receiving end of those negotiations. The official said that Pfizer had this kind of good cop, bad cop negotiating team, and the bad cop told them, why are you only buying this number of doses? People will die because of you. You should buy more. And the government felt this was very kind of strange behaviour. So that was June. Fast forward to October, November. You know, there were more and more people getting COVID every day. And Madeline says this anonymous Latin American country was getting desperate to get a deal signed. And they said that Pfizer made these demands that went way beyond other companies. Just a little background on these kinds of negotiations, as Madeline explained it to me. There are some demands that vaccine companies usually make. In case something happens with the vaccine, the companies transfer some of the legal liability to the government. And so that means that in the extremely, extremely rare event that there are adverse effects from the vaccine and someone sues the company for this, it would be the government rather than the company that pays those legal costs. And it's born out of the philosophy that vaccines protect everyone in society. So governments on behalf of society should bear that cost. But Pfizer in these negotiations wasn't happy with the kind of basic waived liability that all the other companies were asking for. It wanted more. And when we talked to officials in Argentina and Brazil, everyone we spoke to mentioned this one company as the worst one to work with and the most bullish. And so, you know, it took a while for people to be comfortable enough to tell us exactly what happened in these confidential negotiations. But eventually they just felt so strongly, they felt like they were being held to ransom that they wanted this story to come out. And this is that story. They said that Pfizer went even further. They asked them to put up their sovereign assets. So that could be the country's federal bank reserves, embassy buildings, military bases. They wanted those things as a guarantee against the cost of future legal cases. Wow. So they were making a condition of buying the vaccine, the fact that these countries would have to put up an asset Is that shocking to you? That was really shocking to me and so shocking that I went and checked it with a lot of lawyers. And the lawyers all said exactly the same thing. This is ludicrous. This is not typical. And even said this is an abuse of power. Madeline, in the example, if this was to happen, would that country then have to sell those assets to pay for the legal bills? Yeah, so that's what, in Brazil, Pfizer asked for a sum of money to be put in a foreign bank account. And then if there were any legal costs that would need to be paid, Pfizer would take that money and pay them. But I guess the embassy buildings, military bases, federal bank reserves, they would be held by the country. But then if there were any legal costs that needs to be paid, Pfizer would seize them. You know, I, I, I can't speak for Pfizer. So they're like collateral. Yes, indeed. The whole thing left these officials wary of working with Pfizer. But with so few vaccine companies, there weren't many options. And Latin American countries have complained about their struggle to get vaccines more generally. Mexico's president says Latin America has received only a small percentage of the vaccines available worldwide. So when the negotiations with Pfizer went south, what option then did these countries have? Where did they turn? 
If they wanted to get Pfizer's doses, the governments had to agree to those terms. In the case of Argentina and Brazil, the countries didn't strike a deal. And that means the citizens of Argentina and Brazil just won't get access to Pfizer's vaccines. In the case of the other Latin American country, the demands that Pfizer made led to a three-month delay in signing a deal. And any delay in signing a deal to get vaccines means more people getting coronavirus, more people potentially dying. And I think that's that's very sad. On the Pfizer website, they have this statement on access equality. I'll read it. Quote, since the very beginning of our vaccine development program, Pfizer and BioNTech have been firmly committed to equitable and affordable access of COVID-19 vaccines for people around the world. End quote. Madeline, based on your investigation, how do you think they're doing on that account? Well, so we know that Pfizer will give 40 million doses to COVAX, the organization responsible for equitable access. But 40 million doses is only 2%. 2% of the doses Pfizer's planning on producing this year. Which it says is 2 billion. So actually, that's a really, really small amount. It has lowered its prices for some countries. So across Latin America, it's selling its vaccine for about $24. That goes up to $40 in the US. So it is giving some countries a significant discount. Similarly, the African Union, it's selling at a a much lower price. So it has to be applauded for that. So we've reached out to Pfizer for a response to this, but you also asked Pfizer for a response. What did you hear as a result of your reporting from them? We didn't really hear any direct answer to our questions, to be honest. They sent us a statement which said they don't talk about confidential negotiations. And then they sent a statement similar uh, to the one that you've read out about access, saying that they've given out doses at non-market rates and that they've given doses to COVAX. But then, just before we put out the podcast, Madeline sent us one of the statements she received. A few hours later, Pfizer sent the same response to us regarding the negotiations. It reads, quote, In the context of bilateral negotiations, Pfizer and BioNTech have no intention of interfering with any country's diplomatic, military, or culturally significant assets, and any suggestion to the contrary is untrue. End quote. Pfizer isn't alone in facing challenges of inequality. There were also scandals with healthcare officials, including Argentina's now former Minister of Health, and their attempts to get the vaccine for themselves. This prominent Argentine journalist on public radio explained how his friend, the now former health minister, insisted he jumped the queue to get vaccinated. Other cases of senior politicians and business leaders and their families immediately came to light. There have been so many cases of companies, countries, organizations looking out for themselves in their pandemic response without global solidarity in mind. And Madeline's reported on a lot of them. One way to look at that is through COVAX, the organization Pfizer gave vaccines to. I guess there was quite a big, a great hope around COVAX, which was the organization set up by Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the World Health Organization and CEPI, an organization that came out of the Ebola crisis to create vaccines for poorer countries. And so lots of different governments funded COVAX and yet at the same time gone away and struck these direct deal with the manufacturers themselves. 
if rich countries are making direct deals with the manufacturers, there is less supply for COVAX, for those vaccines that can be distributed equitably. None of this is surprising, but it is disappointing. In fact, one of Madeline's articles is subtitled Vaccine Apartheid, Endangering Us All. Global vaccine apartheid, is that what we're seeing? I think it's too early to say if if that's what we're seeing. We are definitely seeing the UK, Israel, having vaccinated a third to almost a half of its population. Israel waited two months after launching their vaccination campaign to begin sharing the vaccine with Palestinians. That started this week. They're only vaccinating Palestinians who cross into Israel for work and those working in illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. On the continent of Africa, vaccines have just started too. The first vaccines are arriving in countries like Ghana, Nigeria, etc. But that doesn't mean everyone's being vaccinated just yet, Madeline says. There won't be widespread inoculation in some countries in sub-Saharan Africa until 2023-2024. Now, I hope those predictions aren't correct, but people see these kind of press releases from COVAX of vaccines landing in Nigeria or landing in Ghana and think the problem is solved. But the reality is it's not even enough to vaccinate these countries' health workers. And Madeline was realizing this inequality was a problem even shortly after the pandemic began. Remember when there were shortages of masks and then ventilators? This was a year ago now. Hospitals were desperately trying to get PPE. The world is facing chronic shortage of personal protective equipment. Ventilators. What am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? One of the topics that we looked at in particular were these sedatives and anesthetic drugs to go with a ventilator. Doctors do use more of these sedatives and painkillers to put people to sleep so that they can put a, a tube down their throat. We found a hospital in New York that in order to conserve medication, it was performing an operation called a tracheostomy earlier so that they didn't have to keep people on these these huge amounts of sedative drugs, which is where you drill a a hole in the patient's throat in order to put the the breathing tube that connects to the ventilator. Oh my goodness. And instead of there being some coordination, so everyone working together to make sure that each country and each hospital within that country had the supplies we needed. There was just this sort of bun fight for those resources. So the lack of global solidarity, there was a kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's so awful, it's almost funny. There was a plane that was going to a particular country, I think France, with supplies of PPE. And mid-flight, those supplies were bought up by another country and, and the plane, and the, wow. you know, those supplies went to another country. So Instead of working together and distributing things equally, we kind of put ourselves in competition with every other country in the world. So then you started looking at the Global South more specifically. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. What were you finding? Oxygen is probably the most important treatment that we have for COVID. And in the West, we have these big trucks which deliver liquid oxygen into tanks near our hospitals. And it's piped to the patient's bedside. In sub-Saharan Africa, there were thousands of cases of COVID patients going to hospitals. There was no oxygen. And this is quite a horrible sentence to say, but they'd they'd die gasping for air because there was just no oxygen to treat them. And there are two companies that seem to dominate the market in Africa, Madeline says. Two European companies, 
the Lind Group, a German company which has a subsidiary called Afrox, based in South Africa. Afrox distributes oxygen in cylinders to South and East Africa. And then Air Liquide, a French company in West Africa. And then we looked at the prices of these cylinders. So for a standard cylinder that would last someone a day, half a day, it cost between about $23 in Kenya to about $112 in Guinea. And there were loads and loads of costs on top of that. $300 for cylinder deposit fees, a monthly rental fee, paying to transport these cylinders. So if a hospital needed 80 cylinders a day or more, the cost just became hugely, hugely expensive. And we talked to analysts and ex-employees of the companies about why these oxygen prices were so high and why were people being left to, to die without any oxygen. And they said that these companies are making profit margins between 45 to 88 percent on medical oxygen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what they said was that medical oxygen and industrial oxygen, these companies are companies that mainly supply the mining chemical industries. There are a few extra steps that you have to take for medical oxygen. You have to clean the cylinders each time. You have to trace the products And some people said that's why it costs more. But other insiders told us that that didn't really add much to the production costs. And they said, you know, this is just exploitation straight up. But her story made a difference. Since we published that story, USAID has donated a lot of money to improving oxygen systems in sub-Saharan Africa. And the World Health Organization has just convened a task force to work with the companies and, and upgrade oxygen systems. So thankfully, Air Liquide, one of the companies, has come to the table, so that's good. At the same time, every week there are news stories in Brazil, Peru, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, of people still dying in hospital with no oxygen, especially as lots of countries still have raging COVID pandemics. But still, these companies, countries, and organizations have a long way to go. What would you like to see happen? I guess what I'd like to see happen in a dream scenario is some central mechanism. So we could have had a a situation in which we worked out what was needed for, for the COVID response. So there was no sort of snapping up of the world supply um, and making it difficult for other countries to operate. And it's really that, that action we need, not just the words. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed today's episode. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back 